Yeah. <laughs> I forgot what we were talking about. Uh, I don't know. I think I was just talking about how I was super tired from Unbound. Oh, yeah. Just, just like everyone else. Everyone else there who did Unbound was smoked too. But I will say that the day after this race, I could barely get off the couch. I'm definitely taking like six days off right now. No, no riding. Yeah, you looked horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then we had a wedding to go to that night. Which was fine. I felt I felt better by the wedding. Yeah, but. you look you look good on the dance floor. What's up, party people? Welcome back to the Bong Bros Podcast. This week on the show, we covered two of the biggest races that took place in the U.S. this past weekend, Tulsa Tough and Belgian Waffle Ride Asheville. Dylan raced the BWR and gives us a little bit of inside scoop into the happenings there, while Scott followed along and gives us some updates that came out of Tulsa. Admittedly, I didn't follow too much of the race news this weekend as I was at a gravel race of my own out in Spearfish, South Dakota, so I was just kind of along for the ride. All right, enough of this intro stuff. Let's get this Bonk Bros party started. Hey guys, welcome back. Who's going first? Um, I don't know. Do we want to? I think today we're talking about uh, Tulsa Tough and BWR Asheville. What What do we want to start with here? Uh, let's, let's start. With let's Tulsa. start with yeah. Let's start with Tulsa because both of you guys have firsthand experience with BWR, so there might be a little more to talk about there. So let's let's go with Tulsa first. Sounds good. So Scott, I know you were following the race. Um, to be honest, I I didn't actually follow any of it, so I I don't know who I don't know any results. Um, saw a couple clips and stuff of crashes going on, but other than that, I didn't see any podium pictures or anything. Yeah, that seemed to be like the the overarching theme of the Tulsa this year was a lot of crashes, and uh, you know, like I guess rider safety was a big issue there. Um, especially the first night, I was I was tuning into the to live stream a bit, but um, me and Dylan went to a wedding this weekend, so I was like busy with wedding stuff, so I didn't get to watch as much as i would have liked to but um yeah there was a bunch of crashes the first night uh and then a lot of controversy over you know types of barriers that were being used and the the race organizers not not paying as much attention to rider safety as they maybe should have and um they actually tried to stage a a rider protest on the last day at crybaby Crybaby mm-hmm. Hill, which is like, you know, a famous crit with the, uh, they used to actually have on the hill where spectators could come onto the course in between laps. And then they would have like referees who would separate the spectators. But then in 2019, maybe they had to add barriers because of an incident. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there was, there was a rider protest and it, I don't know. It didn't, I saw a couple clips. It seemed like they just got a, they tried to do like a sixty second protest, but it was somehow like blocked by the by well, the live stream or something. Doing like for they the were protests. Do- they were just gonna not race for for a minute. I think they were gonna like just delay. Like when they said go, everyone was just gonna not go. But then mm-hmm. I think somebody like tipped off the live stream or something, something like that, and then. 
they ended up not putting the protest on the live stream. But then um, I think it was Lauren Dodge who who rides for or works for automatic racing rides and, and like helps run the team. Um, she got up and, and get, you know, gave a little a speech about rider safety and how, you know, the organization needs to pay more attention to it. Just saying. So Scott, you done, Tulsa? Uh, when you're talking about like the, the barriers, like what, what do you mean by the barriers? Like you're talking about the barriers that are keeping the spectators off the course, or are you talking well, about keeping the riders from like careening off course? It's both, but the barriers okay. that they use nowadays in Amer- in American bike races in crits, especially, are like these metal barriers, and they link together, and then they have at least they have flat feet, so the feet don't stick up. So like sometimes they used to use barriers where the feet, like if you hit it with your wheel, you would crash. But now they're like flat, so you can come really close to the barrier and and run over it with your wheel. But as long as your hands don't hit the barriers, you're not like you can still hit the the feet. Sure. But now when you hit the barrier, these with these barriers, like one barrier will just like fall over almost, and then you'll smoke the front of the next barrier. Mm-hmm. And they also have um like big like they're just made of metal bars so if there's no plastic shield on it you can like get your head stuck inside the barrier and or an arm or any kind of appendage and you know that could cause a serious injury so um there's other types of barriers that could be used like i know robbie McEwen. i guess he designed his own barrier where it's more like a it's just a piece of plastic almost and it, and it goes down at an angle so if you hit the barrier, crash into the barrier, you'll kind of like get pushed back into the course and they're not going to separate. So yep. the barriers will like form a wall that's almost like a little bit, give, gives a little bit. What's like the hockey boards? Yeah. Except they're that's at an need. angle. That's what so we need. We, like, just, we just need hockey boards around the entire crick course. How sick would that be yeah. though? Exactly. That would be great. But yeah. that, you know, costs a little bit more money. <laughs> if you're storing plastic boards, they're going to be bigger. They're going to be harder to store. You're going to need more trucks to move them and everything like that. And then at Tulsa, when there was that incident with the spectator who got hit by the entire Peloton, I believe it was in the 1-2 race, that section of the course was not even barriered at all. <laughs> and if you're going to, you know, brand Tulsa as this party venue and, like, you know, everybody's drinking and intoxicated, then you need – and then there's a – bike race coming by at 30 or 40 miles an hour you're going to need ways to control all these drunk people right because mm. i heard the rumor that he was you know heavily intoxicated yeah yeah wasn't that wasn't that like the big controversy when uh dylan gronavagan took out um i can't remember his name the quick step guy jacobson fabio jacobson. yeah 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 because the barriers like he just went through the barriers and he basically hit the finish line, like set up like where the judges are sitting almost because the barriers just like fell apart. Whereas if you have barriers that are like linked together, he'll get pushed back into the riders, which will also cause a huge crash, but you're not Mm -hmm. like hitting something that's standing still at 40 miles an hour. Right. You'll just, mm. you know, I'm sure there'll be a lot of injuries still, but it wouldn't, it's not going to be as life threatening as. 
So the pro was the protest specifically about the barriers or just the whole event in general? Um, it was, you know, about like the lighting too, because the races are at night and that mm. first night, especially I've done Tulsa twice. Um, that first night is pretty dark. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, stuff comes. So your, your, your vision's not obviously like, it's not as good because there's dark sections of the course. Like a lot of it's lit up, but then you hit like these dark sections. So you're going it through shadows and everything. So it's, it's harder to focus on like where your wheel is. It might be easier to have a touch of wheels or not see like part of the barrier sticking out a little bit on the side. You can hit the barriers easier. Yeah. Um, but like the barriers are a big thing. Cause that's like easy to fix. And mm-hmm. people have been talking about it for a while. And nothing seems to be getting done about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, Scott, has there ever been talk about like developing crit specific courses so that they're not just going through streets where you could actually have permanent infrastructure in place? I don't know. I feel like it'd be, it'd be better to have street circuits, but like specifically not design the street, but you could, make changes to the road surface and things that, you know, the bike race is coming. Cause sometimes mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times they'll just like patch up some holes like the week before the race, but then you got a bunch of like loose asphalt and it's still, they don't do that good of a job. So it's right. If you're going to have the race well, yeah, in the same, but, but a year. lot of these, you know, a lot of crits, I mean, the bigger ones are, um, you know, maybe a little different, but um, you know, a lot of the smaller crits, they don't even have barriers a lot of times. Right. Cause they're just, they're just on open streets inside of, uh, you know, city town halls or something like that. You know, like, you know, downtowns, um, where like everyday pedestrians don't even understand that there's a bike race going on. They're just used to walking around their streets and jaywalking and stuff like that. Um, so if you don't know a bike race is going on versus like, if it was a permanent infrastructure venue, you're not going to just like randomly stumble upon a bike race taking place because you'd have to go out of your way to get there. Yeah, but that's also, you know, that's like the whole draw to crits is that they're downtown. You know, there's plenty of restaurants and bars for people to go to. And that's like the whole vibe. Whereas Mm -hmm. if like having it in the middle of a, you know, maybe at like a race car track or something where it's already kind of set up for that, there might not be as many spectators there. Dude, look at like NASCAR though. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a good point. You could have permanent, think, like, uh, you know, video stuff in place for, for televising. Yeah, it. I think having more races at uh, race car tracks probably makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and they've already got the infrastructure, the parking and everything yeah. for races. But yeah, yeah, for sure. Building a permanent crit track is probably more money than than cycling setting up some barriers yeah. you know what i mean <laughs> or set or setting up like a little bit more expensive barriers you know yeah. what i mean like most race promoters probably don't have the money to set up a permanent crit course wherever they would set it up yeah or just having the race in the daylight too that helps mm-hmm. why or, why do they want to have it at night again it go, i think it's just like it well it's friday night so dude like, i at tulsa I ha- like the first night's the latest and then mm-hmm. uh Saturday night at least for like like I think the the women end up racing in the daylight and the men end up racing like towards like at sunset almost and then s- yeah. Sunday is like in the afternoon so it's light so it's I, like Friday yeah. night you don't want people to like I guess I don't know give some 
people are still at work, so you don't want to race during work time. I, I've done a few um, like late in the day, almost nighttime races before. Luckily, that's not typically when I race because all these ultra endurance events start at, you know, first, like as soon as the sun comes, comes up in the morning, which I actually prefer because I'm kind of an early riser. But I, it is, that, that's, it's so hard to go to bed after you've like maxed out your heart rate for an hour and a half, you know, and then, you know, like an hour or two hours later, you're, you're like trying to go to sleep. And you're like, like you sucking tr- down caffeine gels the whole time. And you're, <laughs> that's it. That's too. That's too. I was like any, any time that I've ever done a race past, I don't know, six or 7 PM. It's like that night's sleep is just out the window. Yeah. I mean, no, people I, yeah, are all really the, people. uh, all the like epic rides races, they always do like a Friday night crit, fat tire crit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And literally every Friday night I wake up with like cold sweats. <laughs> uh, you know, just like, how, la- yeah, how late are those before they're not super late. I mean, they finish by, they finish around sunset. So, you know, maybe seven o'clock or something like that. Yeah. Um, seven, seven thirty. So they're not super late, but still, I mean, just like pegging yourself that late at yeah. night is, is pretty tough. Right. And then I last mean, year guess- they, they switched the events. So then the, the XC race was the next morning at like seven 30. So oh hard. man that's brutal <laughs> yeah yeah because you're probably going to get really terrible sleep before that before that race and oh, at yeah. those like if you don't have two sets of wheels you got to like switch your tires and everything right yep so you're going to be up all night like covered in stands yep all, all jacked up on caffeine <laughs> yeah i feel like they should almost so they they even call it the fat tire crit right i almost feel like they should have a rule whatever tires you use for the fat tire crate you have to use yeah for the xc that's that's one like beef i've i've always had with the fat tire crits at epic rides is yeah you should just have to run the exact same bike mm-hmm. well you do have to run the same bike the but same bike but you tires. can switch tires that's literally the only thing that they say you have to you can right you can switch your tires but i don't know why not just just run the same tires it makes it easier on everyone who's traveling without a team and stuff and they don't have mechanics supporting mm-hmm. them and switching tires out and stuff mm-hmm. yeah it's probably a little more dangerous but i don't what's, know you're also going the, a little slower in, in these races what's the like what's the point of doing a fat tire crit versus like a, a short track or like an urban short track or something there's some tradition behind it i guess like in the 90s or something they fat tire crits were a thing but they used to have to race on their xc tires mm-hmm. which back then they were probably you know 1.75 tires anyways but um so i don't know epic rise just brought it back as like a tradition thing it's also probably a lot easier to put on than like a short track race you don't have to like mark the course and and stuff like that like they, they do the same thing i mean they're all downtown no barriers set up though <laughs> yeah yeah i mean I, I think it's probably a little bit better for spectators because it's downtown and that's yeah. probably why they have it so late in the day it's like and they're also only like work. 20 minutes Another another thing that they were talking about at Tulsa was the uh, the f- the field size limits. So I think mm-hmm. there was a limit of 150 riders, but then somebody put on Instagram that there was actually like 170 riders, at least in the men's race. So they let wow. more riders in, which 150 is like too many to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. And then they let so the, the the field sizes are massive on this, you know, yeah, fairly small course. 
Do you have any results or anything? Oh, yeah. I guess we can talk about the results. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yeah. Uh, For the women, uh, Skylar Schneider won all three days, which is not a surprise. Yeah. She's a beast. Yeah. And then for the men, uh, Luke Lamperti ended up winning the overall. So, like, the it's an Omnium mm. style race. Mm-hmm. So, it's three nights, and then it's based on points. Um, Ty Magner won the first night. And then Brian Gomez um, on Best Buddies won the second night with uh, Alfredo, his teammate, in second. And then Luke won on Crybaby. And Luke that's won it. Crybaby. Yeah, he won Crybaby. So, it looked so like he won... He won Sunday to, to then also win the overall. That's pretty clutch. Oh, also win the overall, yeah. Sick. Nice. How do they do and the Omnium scoring there? Um, I don't know exactly. There's a points table. Okay. So, like, he, he, I think he knew that he had to win. And, and then, like, Alfredo probably had to get... I think Alfredo was, like, fourth or fifth on the on the crybaby. So, if he might have hmm. gotten second, Alfredo might have still won. But Okay. Sweet. And Luke's the crit national champion, right? Yeah. Yeah. I remember watching crit nationals and uh, when he won, the commentators had absolutely no idea who he was. Yeah. And they kept, at least from the live stream that I watched the little bit that I was able to, to watch, they kept talking about how, you know, he doesn't do a lot of crits. So he's like, yeah, he's the national champion, but he's like, not, he's not like trained for these <laughs> or anything. And I'm like, dude, like he's a phenomenal He's like a bike racer. Like he's good at bike racing, and this is a bike mm-hmm. race. Like it's not like you just you have to like specialize in crits to, and then if you don't, you're like not any what, good at crits. I, I don't really know a lot about him. What does he specialize in? He's like he's on um, Trinity Racing, so mm-hmm. he's like in Europe for most of the year doing doing like what mountain bike World Cups or something. No road, road. no no they're they're road team. Yeah okay cool. <laughs> It's a, it's like a development road team. So he's doing like a lot of two point twos and, and stuff like that in Europe. Hmm. Hmm. So hard, really hard races that are you know a lot harder than these crits. <laughs> and the, I, guess, I don't know. I guess the commentators just love to. So is he racing Tulsa without a teammate or without any teammates? Yeah, yeah alone. That's awesome. Nice, <laughs> sweet. All right, does that wrap up Tulsa? Yeah, th- yeah, I think so. Cool. Dylan, you want to kick us off with BWR Asheville? Sure. Um, I guess probably the first thing to say was the changes that they made to the course. So if you, if anyone did uh, BWR Asheville last year, it was for sure the easiest BWR course. It was it was the shortest BWR course. It was a hundred miles flat, and actually, I think they had to make a change to the course due to flooding so it was slightly under 100 miles last year it was like 98 or 99 or something and no single track uh winning time was like 445 which is very short for a bwr race and then they just went in the complete opposite direction this year i'm sure that after last year they were like this needs to be harder and then and then at least in my opinion they went too far with it they added <laughs> like way more climbing, way more single track, um, way more gnarly sections. Winning time was almost seven hours. So I felt like last year was the easiest BWR course. This year probably makes it the hardest BWR course. Um, I haven't ridden the Kansas course, but I can't imagine that 
it's harder than this, given that it's shorter yeah, and Kansas has less climbing. Shorter. Yeah. Yeah. Although, have, have you seen the Michigan course? Or they just I haven't really Michigan looked race? at it much, no. Are you going to go up for it? Uh, I'll think about it. I'll see how I'm feeling during that time cool. of year. Usually at, at that time of year, it's it's like I should probably not race too much because I'm I'm on the edge of. I think being it's like either the week before out. or the week after Big Sugar. Yeah, if it's after Big Sugar, I might consider it. If it's before Big Sugar, I think I'll probably just focus on Big Sugar because that's the yeah. last lifetime race. It also depends on how I'm doing in the lifetime series, but uh, sure. if I'm you know if I'm on the cusp of getting a top ten in the lifetime series, I'll just put all my uh, all my eggs in the in the big sugar bucket. Cool. Well, anyways, back to PWR Asheville. So did, I remember last year you guys, or maybe Carrie or some, someone was talking about how it like started kind of in the middle of nowhere, like in just some field or something, wasn't it? Well, it starts at Canuga. Um, and what is anybody that? who's, anybody who's a North Carolina mountain biker probably knows of Canuga or has ridden there. It's, it's like this bike park. Um, mm. It's kind of sort of an enduro downhill style park. There's a lot of e-bikers there. Um, I mean, XC riders can ride there, but it's it's more popular amongst the enduro crowd, and and that's where it's that's where it started. Not kind of at the bike park, but just at I don't know the conference center or something. So I wouldn't say it's the middle of nowhere, but um, it's definitely you know. It's definitely not in any sort of downtown area, that's for sure. And yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's probably a pretty good place to start. So they started and finished the same spot this year? Yeah, they did that last year too. Okay, so yeah. wh- where um, where do they get all this extra vert and mileage from? Well, part of, I mean, there wasn't, part of how they got the extra mileage is that they just did two laps of Pinnacle Mountain Road, so mm-hmm. Pinnacle Mountain Road is probably the gnarliest section of last year's course. Um, and then they just had you do it twice. And on the second lap, they added all this single track. And it was not it was not like well-maintained single track. Well, the, the first bit was like brand new. Um, and it was kind of bumpy, especially on basically, you know, a rigid bike. And then you went into this double check track that was super overgrown super bumpy i i literally have blisters on my hands from the race and (laughs) like i never get blisters on my hands from a gravel race Hmm. um and then there was like a switchback section of single track at the rebranch um that you did twice downhill Downhill. so there's a lot of single track and and they had you do this this pinnacle mountain road section twice and i think there were a lot of people that got confused by the signage because there were like these signs that said lap one, lap two. Uh, and I, I think some people didn't even know that they were doing laps because most of these gravel races are just one big loop. There's no laps. So they just followed, they just followed like the lap two sign and made the course a lot shorter. They had like separate results for people who accidentally did that. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did anyone like, was that a factor in like the lead group or anything? Yes. Well, I don't know if it was a factor for Pete. I think Pete followed the course correctly, but there were people in both the men's and the women's race that were up there in the top 10 
that made wrong turns and it, you know, it affected the results. Oh, um, that's a bummer. Yeah. So I don't know. Do, I mean, I did think they not I have like it, a GPS. No, they had GPS. Hmm. Yeah. I, I don't need, like, I don't need GPS for this race. It's like in my backyard. So I could probably do the course without GPS. Um, but I mean, obviously most people who did the race don't live here. So, uh, I think, all the, all they really needed to do was have a course marshal at the at the section where the course splits to lap one and lap two, and just say, "Hey, if it's your first lap, go this way. If it's your second lap, go that way." And it should be pretty obvious, right? Like when you see Pete Stetna coming with his, you know, with his group, be like, "All right, go on to lap two. and then, um, you know, if it when you see other riders, just just say. You know, waffle riders lap one this way. Hmm. Uh, I, it just would have. They had signs saying all of that, but sometimes when you're racing, it's hard to read. I think a course marshal there would have solved all the issues, or just not double lapping that section. Like, is there another way to get to where they wanted to go without looping looping that pinnacle road twice? No, I think they could have done more. Um, so they could have instead of doing pinnacle mountain road twice. I think they could have done Rich Mountain Road, which would have been, you know, not the same loop twice. And it probably wouldn't have been quite 130 miles. It might have been 120, but I think that probably would have been fine. <laughs> okay. There, there's pro- there's got to be another place they could add some mileage, right? If that's what, or just not add the mileage. I mean, it seemed hard enough from, I, w- I was feeding Dylan, so I was observing the race from all the different points. I probably saw it six or seven times. And we were at this spot at mile 70 and anyone, anyone outside like the top 30 was just hanging on for dear life. Like they looked (laughs) in a rough shape at mile seven. They still had 60 miles to go. Yeah. I would love to do this mountain road again. I know. I would love to see the DNF right there. I bet it was really high. I bet it was higher than any other BWR race. Um, because I think there's probably a lot of people too that were kind of expecting last year's course ish, yeah. And then they got this year's course, and they're, the two aren't even comparable. Hmm. I mean, winning winning time last year four forty five, winning time this year almost seven hours. You know, that's a very yeah. Two price. hours added to the winner means like hmm. a lot of people that's you're adding three four hours probably. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, uh, I mean, it probably, it probably made an even bigger difference in the women's race. Um, I didn't, I, I believe that Casey Armstrong went off course and, uh, Flavia went off course. Um, and you know, I don't know if you look at, if you look at the, the women's results, it seems like seems like the time gaps were more spread out is probably more indicative of the fact that a lot more of them went off course when they could have, you know, if they were just following the course, it would have been fine. Um, yeah, I think, I think, uh, Flavia, somebody was saying how she did a hundred, somebody was talking to her after the race. Mm-hmm. Uh, she did 150 miles. Yeah. <laughs> or something like I saw, I saw her come, I saw her coming up. Uh, I saw her coming up like the wrong way as I was going down to finish my race. Um, and I'm like, you know, 
I'm like six hours in at this point and she's coming up back up the wrong way and she still has a whole nother lap of pinnacle to do. And I was like, man, I'm so did, glad so I'm did almost she like turn around thing. then? She knew she went the wrong way and turned around or something? Yeah, what she probably did is she went to that last aid station and then realized that she made a mistake, you know? Yeah, because she was probably like the first person there or something. They weren't right. even set up yet. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and with the GPS, like, I don't know, when I used to use a Wahoo, this would happen a little bit, um, was like, if you did a double lap of something, mm-hmm. sometimes the GPS would like automatically think you're on the second lap. Mm-hmm. And like, so when you have like, you know, miles to go up on your screen, it would mm-hmm. say like, go from like 90 to like 70, like you cut out that 20 mile loop. Right. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. Even if you have the GP, you know, everyone has the GPS on their, on their head unit when you do double track and like, and like you're always, you know, I don't know if it crossed the same point a couple other times or, but it could have messed up on the GPS. So then it's even more of a reason to have a course marshal out there, like telling you where to go. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I personally don't like when races do that, when they just double lap a small section or feature or something. Because to me, it kind of says, like, there's not enough interesting stuff with the rest of the terrain that you have to, like, throw in this extra hard feature twice. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, just do it once. Make that the hardest part of the course, and that's fine. Um, or find somewhere else. Maybe there's somewhere else that is just as hard that you could add in. Yeah, I was almost thinking, I mean, anyone who lives here knows how good the gravel is in Pisca. I was almost wondering why they couldn't have a little bit of gravel in Pisca, but, I mean, they probably would have had to get permits and stuff and yeah national forest is hard i think that i think that pisca has races but i believe that the limit if you're running a race in pisca is 200 people which obviously bwr was a lot more than 200 people so yeah that wouldn't that wouldn't work out but dylan what what is the what was the winning time of uh san diego this year uh i don't know 620 maybe 615 so it was faster than this than this race yeah yeah, well, oh. the average speed was way higher, too, for San Diego. Um, right. Yeah. How much pavement is there on the Asheville course? A decent amount. I mean, there's it's probably 60% pavement. It's just the off-road sections, and it's really the second half of the course. The off-road sections are so tough that it just hmm. slows everything down. I mean, there was one section where a lot of riders in the front group were getting off and walking. Wow. It was that steep. Um. So you you knew the course coming in. So like, did you make any adjustments to your bike or anything to to prep for um, some of these roads? No, not really. I pretty much you were ran off my Kansas. Or I mean, unbound. So so did you? You didn't change anything on your bike from there. I I pretty much ran the exact same setup that I did for unbound, minus the arrow bars because okay. arrow bars are not allowed at BWR. But I don't know if it would have been a great course for arrow bars anyway because there's so, you're either like going uphill or you're going downhill for most of the race sure so yeah i ran the same tires specialized pathfinder pro 42 millimeter um in like the race bible or bajible or whatever however you pronounce it (laughs) um they were talking about how like you know probably the best tires like a 38 or something and you know the pros are going to be running narrower i i don't agree with that at all like for the first half of the course, you can get away with narrower, but the races decided not only if you're a pro, but also if you're just an amateur trying to finish. I 
I think the race is like decided in the second half where that that's where you're going to quit the race or that's where some sort of race winning move is going to happen. I think you should run the tires for the second half of the course. Well, yeah, especially be more if, aggressive. Yeah. If the second half, of the race is more technical and that's where some like the single track sections were coming in, like you're going to be more tired at that point, maybe not quite mm-hmm. as focused. Um, yeah. Cramping or something, you know, like, yeah. So you want to make sure you have a little bit extra protection or cushion there. Oh yeah. The, a lot of these people were in rough, rough shape from, <laughs> from sitting at that aid station. It looked, uh, it looked brutal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it wasn't even that hot either. Yeah, uh, it could have been, it could have been way worse. It's 90 degrees today in, in Brevard. So it could have been 90 and then it would have been way worse. So Dylan, what, what place did you finish and what was your time? Uh, I got 12th place and my time was seven hours and it was like basically seven and a half hours. Um, so 12th I, place. So you, and you said the winner was just under seven hours. Yeah. Pete Stetna, I think was six fifty, six fifty something. He won. I think that's what I saw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stetna won. won. Okay. Mm-hmm. Did he, did he win? Uh, like, did he attack up that pinnacle road or something? I don't really, so I don't know what happened because um, I was already dropped at that point, but I don't think he had to attack. I think there's just so much climbing that hmm. it was almost played out more like a mountain bike race than it than a gravel race, you know, where people are just kind of going at their hard pace and it naturally separates. Yeah, when I when I saw him at mile 103, I think, which was like the second time through this 1-8 station, mm-hmm. um, he had like a couple minute lead at least over... I think it was uh, Nathan Haas and, and Paul Voss, maybe. Yeah, that Paul Voss. Yeah. Yeah. And then by that point, and then the rest of it, like the gap between behind those two guys was huge. Yeah. You know, five or 10 minutes. I didn't have a timer out, but yeah. Like it seemed like you could have ended the race there and it would have been the same result, which, you know. So, so you there, weren't, there weren't big groups together anymore at that point, Scott? No, it was like ones and twos. Okay. Yeah. Maybe a couple groups of three or four, but like, well, there yeah. was, there was, a, so this section that I was talking about where people were walking their bike, like even the front group of pros was walking their bike. That was 60 miles in. And I, and from what I heard, that's where, I, that's where I popped off. Um, and from what I heard, like everything splintered after that. Um, cause it's not long after that, that you get into pinnacle mountain road and then you have the rebranch single track and all of that. And, and I think like it, it was a big group of maybe 20 riders. And then after that, it was like ones and twos. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I was feeling super cooked after unbound and not just unbound, but like the whole season up to this point has just been a lot of racing. And, um, I was considering not even racing like Thursday. I was, I was 50, 50 on whether I was going to race, but the day before I felt good enough. And, um, and so I decided to race. Um, and I was totally regretting that decision about halfway through the race. Cause I kind of went into a dark place about maybe three or four hours in, but towards the end of the race, I, my legs came around and I felt a lot better. Are you back Dylan? Yeah. I forgot what we were talking about. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think I was just talking about how I was super tired from Unbound. Oh yeah, just, just like everyone else. Everyone else there who did Unbound was 
smoke too. But I will say that the day after this race, I could barely get off the couch. Um, I'm definitely taking like six days off right now. No, no riding. Um, yeah, you looked horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then we had a wedding to go to that night. Which was fine. I felt I felt better by the wedding. Yeah, but. you look you look good on the dance floor, so you couldn't have been that sore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dylan, you think like they're gonna have to start like doing some road closures and stuff for these races? Like at least yeah, at the BWR events. It seems, you know, I this was the first one I've ever been to, but it seems like it's they're do it like especially California in this one. Like it's pretty populated, like mm-hmm. Unbound. Seems like you're not going to see anybody out there. Yeah, I mean, Unbound, it's really not an issue. Uh, and a lot of these gravel races that are in the, you know, kind of the middle of nowhere, it's not really an issue, um, like Mid-South or or whatever. They're on country roads that barely see any traffic. But uh, BWR San Diego, definitely, and BWR Asheville, I mean, they're not they're not super high-traffic roads, but they're, you know, there's enough cars that it could, you know, there could be an issue. I don't know. It'd just be, it'd be really hard to close off that much road. Yeah. I mean, it's, you'd have to yeah. like, it'd they, be rolling closures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if they can't even have, but you can't do, you could do a rolling enclosure for like the front, whatever people, but right. It's going to be too hard to do it for the whole rate. That's impossible. But yeah, mm-hmm. you're not even going to have a course marshal at like the intersection. Don't they usually have like lead in in follow cars and in like a little caravan of neutral support and stuff? I know they do in the in yeah San Diego. they do the the aid stations and the support at BWR is is probably the best out of any gravel race. It, um, like they they've got a car following the lead group at least uh, the whole time, handing you bottles and gels if you need them. And then the aid stations seem to be very well stocked as opposed to some of these gravel races where it's like there's two aid stations over some crazy distance and you, you need like a, a support crew there in order to even get anything. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's definitely something that BWR has dialed. Do you, do you like that or do you prefer more of the like self-supported style? No, I don't like self-supported. Okay. <laughs> I'm not people, you know, sometimes people ask me like, Dylan, are you ever going to get into the, I don't know, the 350 XL unbound or start doing bike packing races like tour divide or something. And I don't know, maybe I will when I get older. Um, maybe that's like the natural progression of things, but I don't find the, like having to stop at gas stations or find my own water to be an exciting part of those races. Yeah. Or or riding like a 35 pound bike. that's fully loaded with stuff. Sure. That too. I kind of want to be on a, like, even if it's a long race, I want to be, have a lightweight setup and, and not have to worry about like logistics. Like where am I going to filter my water? You know? Sure. So Pete won the men's race. Who won the women's race? Dude, talking about they don't even have results on their website. Hold on, hold on, hold on. And Velo News doesn't even have an article about the women's race. That's shocking. Maybe it's not our fault that we don't know that it's the results. It's the no. I saw. I saw the women's winner. I just can't remember her name. Mm. Sarah Max. Yeah, Sarah Max. 
Yeah, Sarah Max won the women's race, and her her time gap uh, to second place, Casey, was like I don't know, thirty or forty minutes or something like that. It was huge. But I think, like I said earlier, I think that forty five minutes back to Casey Armstrong. Yeah, I think so, that in Sarah's time was eight twenty four. Mm-hmm. Gosh, that's like doing almost like doing two unbounds in a row. I don't know if she did unbound, but I know Casey did. <laughs> yeah. So, so Casey raced was, for was nine hours time? and ten minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is that's uh, that's a lot of hard racing, and that's like twenty twenty hours of racing in in a, a week. week. Yeah. Wow. So I think those time gaps are just more a product of the fact that people were going off course more than mm-hmm. anything. Like I think Casey went off course. Was was that a thing at, at the uh, California BWR? What people going like, off course? Yeah, like it was that. A- no, I don't think so. I think it was well marked at California. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, it says here that Sarah did race unbound. Mm. She made last minute change of plans to head east after unbound to do uh bwr Asheville. yeah i heard i heard that pete made last minute plans as well like he was not going to come and then he decided to come is that because they don't allow arrow bars <laughs> i don't know well <laughs> he he would prefer it if there was a rule against arrow bars that way he doesn't have to you know have to like think about what everyone else is running so bwr Asheville is part of the quadruple crown right mm-hmm. do they do like an overall scoring for that is there like a, a series title yeah yeah there is and it's kind of interesting how they do it too it's not based off of points it's based off of uh time from the four events hmm. so they just add up the time from the four events and whoever has the lowest time is the winner so to win you have to do all four then you couldn't like mm-hmm. poach three of them or something yeah you have to do all four Okay. Yeah. Do you have plans to do the last two? I think that'll what I was considering doing all four at the beginning of this year. And I think if there's anything that I learned from the first part of this season, it's that over racing is definitely a thing and it definitely negative negatively affects performance. So I would almost prefer to just focus on the lifetime series. If I'm still in contention for a top 10 there, um, as opposed to trying to do, do, you know, BWR or some, you know, some other races. So yeah. I'm not saying that I'm not going to do any races outside of the lifetime series for the remainder of the year, but I don't see myself, you know, traveling to Utah or, and, uh, traveling to Kansas when, when that's not my main goal. Cause that's, that's a lot of travel. Right. Now, since they added this one in Michigan, is that in the series or is it? Just an no, it's just no. I think extra. it's just a, it's think, just a pilot, you know, year for that one or something. Um, and yeah. I was going to bring that up next. Like, where do you guys or Dylan? I don't know if you, have you heard anything. Like, where where do you think BWR is trying to go with adding this fifth race? And then I've heard talks that there might be a sixth race coming for next year. Like, do you think they're yeah. trying to create a rival series to the Lifetime Grand Prix? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I th- I think that's totally what they're going to do. Try to do, and if. The Michigan race goes well. They're they're definitely going to add the Michigan race to the series, and if they add a six one next year, you know that might be the pilot year for the next one, and then they'll add a six one the year after that. 
So I hope <laughs> I hope they stop at six because that's already a lot. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think I don't. You know, I don't know. As far as being a rival of the Lifetime Grand Prix series, I don't I don't know what their stance is on that. But I mean, as of right now, it is probably the second biggest gravel series in the US. Um so it's it's certainly a rival. And it's it's more inclusive, right? Because anyone can do it as opposed to just having uh, 60 riders who can do the lifetime series. Yeah. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll save the, the lifetime banter for maybe next week or something when there's not <laughs> much racing to talk about. Cause I think we all right. have some opinions on that, or at least Scott and I do. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it's interesting to see, you know, that BWR does a great job with their covering their events. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, they do a really good job covering stuff on their live Instagram feed. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. Do they have it on like Flow Sports or anything like that, or is it just through their social media channels? No, I don't think they have it on Flow Sports. But they, yeah, they, there's a um, there's a ton of media out there taking pictures and filming. Like any time that I have, uh, you know, needed footage to make a video of the race, which I've done twice. I did a video for uh, BWR Utah, and I did a video for last year's BWR Asheville. There's, they've got a ton of footage for me to work with, um, which is awesome. So, I mean, I think they put on a really, a really good event. Um, I just, the, the, the course markings at this particular event were a bit confusing. And I guess I was lucky that I'm a local and I just knew where to go. Do they, do they have pretty big payouts for each of the individual events? I think it was five grand for the winner. Uh, men's and women's winner at California, and I think it was a grand for the men's and women's winner mm. here at Asheville. So California is still like the marquee event. Then these these other ones that are part oh, of the series sure. are not on the same level as as San Diego. Yeah, the San Diego one. I mean, it's been going on the longest, and it's definitely it's definitely the 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 most competition, um, and I guess the most prestigious out of the four. Yeah. Do you know, do they do a payout for the overall, the series overall? Yeah, yeah okay. they do. I think Adam Roberge, um, I was on the podium last year I'm trying to remember what his, what his check was, maybe maybe like 3000 or something. Okay. For, for third place, I think I got 1000 Cool. Um, and would, like, yeah. do some of your sponsors, do they, I mean, I don't know, I don't know how they do it with you, like if, if they want you to go to certain races or if they, they leave you kind of to pick your own schedule, but does it still feel like sponsors are um, targeting like San Diego versus some of these other BWRs or, or do they want to see riders at all the, all the events? Uh, I mean, you can, I would, I would think that most riders can pick and choose and I would hope, I would hope that's the case because if they, if there's a sponsor that wants their rider at all the, all the major U S gravel races, uh, that rider's going to be burnt out by the end of the year. There's so yeah, there's many, too many. There's so many to be at, right? I mean, I think that the the BWR San Diego race, like the expo there and everything that's going on sponsor wise, is probably right up there with Unbound in terms of a race that you want to be at if you're a if you're a sponsor or if you want an expo spot or if you want your riders to be at. Yeah. Yeah, and in like the prestige of winning that race still feels like that's like 
if you win BWR, you're winning one of the, if not the biggest gravel races mm-hmm. in the, in the, in the U S yeah, for sure. Part, part of it is probably that unbound is so long that you just don't quite get as many of the top riders going there. Cause not everyone is willing mm-hmm. or able to cut out a 10 hour race into their, in the middle of their schedule. Um, but it seems like a lot more riders from all different disciplines come out to BWR San Diego. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Th- these BWR races also seems like they attract a lot of roadies who just kind of want to dip their toe into gravel, but aren't like f- fully committed to gravel. Like the whole project, it seemed like all these project echelon guys were at the BWR Asheville race. Um, so, and you know, you're never going to see those guys at, I don't know, mid South or unbound or something like that. Right. Have you, uh, like thought about doing any of these UCI gravel races that they released? Like, uh, I remember them releasing the calendar and then I never really heard anything about it. Seems yeah. Like all the Americans just stick to the American gravel stuff. Right. I think the UCI gravel calendar is a little bit bigger deal in other countries if i'm not mistaken and then for whatever reason the u.s gravel racers are like we already have a full gravel schedule we don't need that uh which is kind of where i fall on that as well i already have a packed gravel schedule i don't need more gravel races um so i don't know i mean it may be something that i think about in the future but i don't have any plans of doing any uci gravel racing this year yeah i know initially the world championships was was slated to be in Tahoe, which mm-hmm. I think would have attracted a lot more of the U.S. riders to like go to one of the qualifying events so that they could go do the Worlds in their home country. But now that it's in Italy and they still haven't announced the dates for when that's going to take place, like officially, they just mm-hmm. it's sometime in o- October, I think. But I think they're still trying to figure out when to fit that into the calendar. Um, it's just like hard. Like, how do you even like if you do want to go to Worlds? Like, how do how do you plan for that if you don't know when the race is going to take place. Um, right. I'm sure they're, they're going up against like the lifetime grand prix, you know, big sugars mid October. So they've got to fit it around that. Uh, knowing that the, the U S gravel scene is, uh, probably one of the biggest gravel scenes in the world. I'm guessing at this point, I think internationally it's still growing, but, um, the U S it's m- much more prominent. They, they need to make sure that they fit it around the U S gravel calendar more than anything. Yeah. I think it'll be interesting to see whether whether that whole thing becomes like basically a whole separate pro discipline or whether it, it's kind of kind of like a side discipline to road and mountain biking, um, which it seems like it kind of is now like there's some there's some pro roadies that are trying it. But, you know, um, like whether there become dedicated pro gravel racers who are chasing the UCI gravel calendar, like there are dedicated pro road right. racers, right. Or pro, dedicated pro mountain bikers, you know, who knows? We'll see. Yeah. I think, I think that's what they're hoping for. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a, a lot of it in the U S like a lot of the attraction to, uh, riders who've come over from other disciplines is just that you can, you can span across multiple disciplines still like you can still race mountain bikes. You can race gravel or you can still race road. Then you can race gravel. Like there, there aren't as many, it seems like just dedicated gravel racers in the U S even. Um, mm-hmm. and this is like the biggest gravel scene. Like there, there, there are definitely some gravel specific teams out there, 
but a lot of the writers that com, com, uh, you know that make up those teams still are on a road team or maybe you know still race mountain bikes or something else right yeah i mean there's there's still a huge contingent of people that are upset that the uci is even getting involved in gravel at all i mean i you know if i ever read uh, not even related to the uci gravel but like even related to unbound like there'll be an article on you know on velo news or something about the winner's bike at unbound and uh and you know i'm scrolling through on facebook and i see the article and the comments under there there's always comments like like why you know the fact that unbound is even a race where somebody is a winner is is the problem with gravel today like there are people that don't want gravel to to even be raced right they just like like gravel is a thing that you just you go out and you have a good time and you don't race um like the whole, the whole, the whole aero bar thing. I think people are just sour that there, there are people that are taking it too seriously as opposed to just kind of getting on their bike and having a good time. Um, and obviously as soon as the UCI gets involved, it's like, it's like, uh, the whole grassroots, um, you know, nature of gravel racing is out the window. Like, you know, it's it's a uh, it's a full-on pro sport now so yeah i mean you even see yeah unbound has changed so much in the last seven six seven years even um mm-hmm. like there was a point in time where no one had even even heard of unbound 200 right yeah and i and i mean i don't necessarily think it's a bad thing i think all of these events uh it's still i with I, I don't know how the UCI schedule looks or, or how those UCI races look, but all these events are still, anyone can race them. Um, you know, you, you know, you don't have to be a pro to race them. You can, you know, you can be out there doing your own thing and you can also have pros that are trying to go as fast as possible in the same race, doing the same thing. I did like this whole, uproar about people are taking it too seriously it's like well some people are taking it seriously and some people are just out there having a good time why can't we all just be out there having a good time in our own way you know what i'm saying if having a good time to you means taking it super seriously and using arrow bars you know so be it that's that's your definition of having a good time out there yeah yeah Yeah, that was one thing i noticed that at BWR Asheville was like, you know, the top guys were taking it super seriously. And then anyone outside, maybe the top 50 or a hundred was just like, right. Stopping for minutes at the aid stations and talking to people and stuff, which, you know, it seems like that's perfect. in like races that don't have like the loops, like we were talking about, like that's mm-hmm. the only issue I could see where then, then the lead guys are lapping people. And like, there's, mm-hmm. you know, all the, all, all the riders that are getting lapped could have, you know, an impact on the, on the race itself. And it seems like the stakes are pretty high, you know, with so much money in the sport now that the lead guys are willing to take more risks. We'll say mm-hmm. around yeah. the other riders. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most, of, most of these races too, uh, like for example, unbound, the, the leaders are catching all the hundred mile racers towards the end of unbound. Um, so I don't know. I've heard people say that they should have a like a separate 200 mile finishing line and a separate 100 mile finishing line because 
you know, when, when there's a five man sprint for the, for the win at unbound and, uh, and you've got to contend with hundred mile riders, it's just, you know, it makes it more dangerous and it could affect the results. Well, at uh, BWR California, didn't they do like the shorter one the day after? Yeah, they did do that. I which I, th- I thought was cool because yeah. actually they had a, uh, um, you could actually compete in both and they had a podium for the, the lowest time for both events. Yeah. So if, if somebody wanted to do that, they could do that. Cool. Anything else from BWR or gravel? I don't know. I think that's about it. I think overall, you know, overall it was a, it was a great event. Um, just, just probably need to clean up the course markings a little bit. We'll have their people contact your people and you can, you can tell them how to do that. Yeah. Adam, you are my people. So, (laughs) (laughs) all right, sweet. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, maybe we'll, uh, talk a little lifetime or something. Sounds good. Let's do it. Start taking some notes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. See you guys. See See you.